1958 Brussels World's Fair was held at the height of the Cold War. By 1958, the U.S., the Soviet Union, and the United Kingdom all had successfully developed and tested thermonuclear bombs. Almost all of the uranium used in the atomic bombs that the United States Army Air Forces dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was mined from the Shinkoloboe mine in the Belgian Congo under conditions of near-slave labor. In 1958, the Congolese had only recently been allowed to vote for their own political leaders. Two years later, though, the Republic of the Congo, with its capital in Leopoldville, now Kinshasa, gained its independence. But a secession movement and a military coup led to the assassination of Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba, considered by United States and Belgium to be too far left. There was a takeover of the government by Mobutu Sese Seko, who would rule over the country he called Zaire from 1965 until almost the end of the century. In an era of proxy wars, art was also a battlefield. The style and sentiments of literature and movies were taken as explicitly political statements. While the USSR notoriously regulated the artistic expression of its writers and filmmakers, the USA also blacklisted and persecuted intellectuals, artists, and activists in this period. Boris Pasternak's novel, Dr. Zhivago, had been refused publication in the USSR due to its critical treatment of a number of aspects of the Soviet regime. Once a member of the Russian Futurists, alongside several pre-war Bolsheviks, Pasternak's style and political attitudes has evolved differently from the mainstream of Soviet artistic ideology, and by the late 1950s, he was entirely out of step with the accepted premises of socialist realism. In 1957, the manuscript of Dr. Zhivago was smuggled to Italy, where it was published by Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli, who was expelled from the Italian Communist Party for his efforts. Translations into English and French were hastily made and published in less than a year. The CIA even violated Feltrinelli's copyright by publishing a sloppily proofread abridged edition of the novel in Russian and distributing it at the Vatican Pavilion of the Brussels World's Fair. In late October, after Expo 58 had concluded, Boris Pasternak was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. While he initially sent a telegram expressing gratitude for the award, he declined to accept it under threat of arrest or exile by the KGB. Welcome to The Pointless Century, where we discuss films, literature, and culture in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Welcome to The Pointless Century. 
I'm your host for this episode, Anna Windorf. I am an English major, which is a shock to no one. And, you know, interested in various studies of the humanities, like these Russian dudes that we're going to talk about today. And our patrons can also check out issue four of the Locust Review. Highly recommend it. You might see some familiar faces in it. I'm joined today by... Hi, I am Rachel, pronouns she, hers. I am a secondary Broadfield social studies education major with concentrations in history and political science. I am also interested in queer studies and the humanities. Now our professor that our uncles warned us about. I'm visiting assistant professor Frank Fucile. You can read my scholarship in interdisciplinary studies in literature and environment or my poetry in Locust Review, or Poet Lore. Today we're going to be talking about Dr. Zhivago, which is great, in my opinion, as a book written by Boris Pasternak. It has a reputation of being very, very long, but not boring. And then we have the completely packed-to-death version, three-hour-long. I don't even know what to describe It's three it. hours long, and it's, it's still way too short, and I could tell that even having never read the novel. They didn't do it justice, and we'll get into why. But yeah, it was three hours long. It was like torture for the eyes, more so than Bertolucci. That is a good question to start with, is how does this measure up to 1900? Because it occurs to me that Bertolucci is basically trying to do his own version of Dr. Zhivago, but make it pro-socialist. I mean, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I have my own thoughts on it. I mean, obviously, I prefer Bertolucci. And there's not nearly as much masturbation in this movie. That's a bummer. It's not hard to do less masturbation than 1900. It's really not. I think that Dr. Zhivago is a movie that wants very hard to be serious. And one of the things that is very endearing about Bertolucci's 1900 is that it's okay with being a little silly and weird and gross. It's serious too, but it's not burdened by seriousness. But I don't know, maybe that's also something in the Italian or the Russian spirit. Though I don't know if I want to take that train all the way to the end of its track, but maybe you get an idea of what I mean. At the very least, it's enjoyable to watch. I mean, (laughs) in Bertolucci, at least you have the parts where you can go like, oh my God, you know, they have their hands in their pockets and then they're riding horses after the wedding. (laughs) And in this film, you don't have any of that. Like the most enjoyable parts, at least for me, is when they're marching down the street and then you're just like, okay, yeah, let's get into it, boys. And then you end up like, where the fuck are we and what are we doing? There's a lot. I think it wouldn't be so surprising for us if people hadn't talked about this movie like it was a great, great movie. I mean, when this movie came out, it was considered a really big deal. And especially people in the West hyped it like it was a freaking masterpiece. I mean, I can see it fitting into its era of very long, big screen built cinematic productions of the mid 60s to early 70s. In my mind, it doesn't quite measure up. Like I said, at three hours, it still manages to be not enough, you know? No, it's not enough. Because you rush through the first hour, yet the first hour feels like four hours. And then the first hour doesn't even represent the events accurately in the book, which is a main point Mm -hmm. of what I want to get into tonight, even though you haven't read the book. But it's like... Well, I am really curious about it because it is obvious that, I mean, for any movie, but especially a movie of a Russian novel like this, like a big freaking arm breaker of a novel, you're going to have to slash it down dramatically. But I suspect that they've done real violence to the text. 
Do you think it'd be better served how like Pride and Prejudice or like Anne of Green Gables? Like it had movies, but then it was adapted to TV shows. Do you think Dr. Zhivago would be better served by a TV they show? They have recently no. done it as a TV show. They have. Oh. So if we want to get real weird, we can go and look into that. But I think that it was most recently done as a television show. I'm on IMDb and it says 2002 for the TV show. Uh, that doesn't That's seem not- recent enough. Yeah. There's a, one in 2006, and then there's Dr. Zhivago, A Celebration in 2010, too. And that's the thing about this. So for a movie like this, we have the text itself insofar as there is the novel published in 1957, banned from publication in the USSR, but, you know, smuggled out and then published. I guess it was first published in Milan is what I'm seeing here. And then, you know, interestingly, re-smuggled back into the Soviet Union. So we have text itself, but immediately when the text emerges, it's then this political object that means something beyond the text that probably damages people's ability to interpret it in the first place. And then about not quite 10 years after that, we get the film version of it, which then again is this other political football. And I'm inclined to assume that the film probably goes even further to propagandize with this, but I don't know, you'd be the judge of that, Anna. Well, yeah, I was going to tell the whole story of how I actually came to read Dr. Zhivago, because I think Please it's like- Please do. I think it's applicable. So last year in the library, before we all got shot to hell for over a year, I was standing in front of the, you know, they have the new picks section in the library. And I was looking at this book and it was intriguing to me because it was all red. And I was like, huh, this looks interesting. And so obviously I read the back cover and like, I'll try to keep the story short. But the premise of that novel, and hold on, I'll go find the title. It was about imagining Pasternak writing Dr. Zhivago, like more about his creative process and then going deeper into the relationships that he had, both with his wife and with his mistress. So that to me was obviously interesting, learning more about him, obviously from a fictional sense and stuff. So that made me want to read the actual thing. It's like Das Kapital, like the first time I looked at it, it was like, oh my God, how am I ever going to do that or have the patience for that? But, you know, I ended up reading it over the summer and I think it's one of those texts that, you know, even if you're not interested in it and whatever, yeah, there's problems with the canine. But I think that it's worth reading for most Mm -hmm. people because in comparison, Pasternak does a really good job on what he's trying to go for. And I know people have said this since it's been published because I'm sure it's considered, or I've always grown up with it to be considered a classic. Yeah, yeah. And then you go through this whole journey and actually finish it and then watch this movie. You realize it probably should have never been made into a movie because it's just so dense. I mean, that kind of, you know, relates back to what we were talking about already with Bertolucci and what are your thoughts on what does the film say, of course. I mean, this is kind of an impossible question because you're talking about, I mean, I don't even know how long this novel is, but it must be enormous. Just I'm, I'm looking at the outline of it here, an almost 600 page novel. So It's hard to boil that down to one or two concepts, but to your mind, just the way that you understand it, what do you think that the big takeaway, the overall message or sentiment or vision of the novel was? 
That is an impossible question, of course, because there's so many different directions you could take that in. And I think it's easier actually to answer that question when you compare it right up against the film, because when I watched the film, it reminded me what the text did that the other text didn't do. But strictly from the text, I'd say that, I mean, obviously you have revolutionary themes in there. I may be finding yourself within chaos, but then realizing that that's really impossible to do because there's always going to be that piece of yourself missing. And, you know, I think that translates well into a love story. And then also realizing that maybe love isn't a limited resource either. And how do I cope with that in my search for myself, which will never come to fruition because it can't? Yeah, I mean, it's called Dr. Zhivago. I've always thought about this as a very pointed decision to title the novel Dr. Zhivago because it is within a tradition, in my mind, of what I think communist orthodoxy of that era would have called you know, a very much bourgeois individualist tradition of the art form. And you think of great Russian novels like Anna Karenina, you think of probably a half dozen or so Emile Zola novels that are named after the various main characters that he chose. And Zola is a great example of that in that Zola is very interested in tracking the whole histories of families in his cycle of novels. I'm a big fan of Zola personally. I feel like he's a real forerunner of some of the stuff that you get ultimately in social realism. I mean, he's truly one of the great naturalists. But if I'm understanding this correctly, and this is a lot of the way that the film takes up the theme, but it's the kind of thing that we'll return to when we talk about Mayakovsky, mm -hmm. is that the hardcore Bolshevik aesthetics of the mid-century were so anti-individualist that they really questioned the concept of a novel that followed an individual person and that was really just about finding yourself or something like that. Because those kinds of novels implicitly or explicitly tend to pit their protagonist against the society. And once you've created a new society that's supposed to be collectivist, that's kind of a threatening thing. That's a fair point. I was going to say that I was thinking about that and maybe within this novel and within his poetry, he's speaking for himself, but also could that also hint at, okay, yeah, he himself is writing, but also what's more important here, especially with the time that we live in, you know, stuff like yeah. that. And like I said, we'll get back to this when we talk about Mayakovsky, which will be our next episode, because Mayakovsky, as much as he was a totally committed communist, he was a really weird kind of an artist to be committed to hardcore communism, because almost everything that he writes, even when he's trying not to, is just a set of absurd overshares about his own insecurities and his sex life and stuff like that. It's absolutely great. And when he's not reading about that, he's really committed to cholera. We'll have plenty of time to talk about that. Let me ask you this, Anna. How significant is Zhivago's poetry in this novel? And would you say that it's represented in a way that pretty much squares up with how it's represented in the film? Or is it treated somewhat differently? 
No, it's treated absolutely differently. In the film, again, like most elements in the book, it's absolutely butchered. Because in the book, at least, you have this whole whatever progression into him and description of him and his writing and his writing process. And then actually, that's what I wanted to do. There's a whole section devoted to poems in the book that Yuri Andreevich supposedly wrote. And like I want So you get to you get to see the poems in the book too. Yeah, the actual, that's great. Like his actual verse that he was supposedly writing when him and Laura were living together. And then you can just picture him I mean, whatever, he's fictional, but you can just picture him writing by his little candle. And they do represent the place accurately. They do represent him writing poetry when he's with Laura. So those two match up. But again, they just gloss over it. It's really quick and doesn't really have much significance in comparison to the other elements. And I think it should have more. I think that was one of my favorite chapters is when I actually had the opportunity to read Yuri Andreevich's verse. I was really upset when in the movie they were like, oh, I'm trying to find the daughter. All about these poems about Lara. And where are the fucking poems? They could have been supposed to imagine them, yeah. It's so stupid. Like, we could have at least included one. So in the novel, are the poems presented as a problem? Are they interpreted by the Bolsheviks as counter-revolutionary as they are in the film? He does run into some problems. I mean, I don't think they did a good job of representing this either. Like, when they're off in the Uryatin and the Urals, He's actually captured by the Cossacks and, you know, taken away for actually a period of time. But obviously, you probably can't show that as much, you know, in the film version. It might have been a contributing factor more in the book to his on... And that's just one example, to his ongoing issues. By the Cossacks, you mean the white Russians? I read it last summer. I think that's I mean, Cossacks are an ethnic group and also like a paramilitary organization, depending on the way that the term is used. But typically they were the heavy cavalry of the Tsar. So I imagine when you say the Cossacks, those would be white Russian army. And I could be wrong, but I think that's the term that Pasternak used. The distinction is significant because in the film, he only ever serves with the Red Army. And that would mean that in the novel, he spends time with each of the two armies. And the novel, therefore, lets you kind of see both sides. And that kind of shows you how the film is buttering its bread. I had suspected this, but I'm not really sure of it until we have this conversation. But I suspect that the novel was, generally speaking, ambivalent about the revolution and tried to be even-handed about the way that the Civil War played out, that basically it was awful in general and both sides did horrible things. That, I imagine, was bad enough that the Soviet authorities didn't really like it. But then when you get a British dude to direct a film of it, what it ends up getting cut down to is mainly look at how bad those commies are. And while I think probably by the standards of a British dude making a movie in 1965, it's, I guess, relatively even-handed. I mean, it's not just a total hatchet job, but it still feels really, really slanted to me for reasons that are probably obvious. Now that you're describing the novel, I'm feeling the same way about when I finished Maze Runner while I was waiting for the movie to start in a theater. I just felt so attacked by it and so disheartened. Like, you effed up this really great novel and I hate you now. I I feel that's sort of what is going on. And that's a common feeling. I mean, people say that the movie is never as good as the novel. 
there are exceptions. I think there's a whole slew of noir novels, you know, like hard-boiled crime novels of the 40s and 50s that are quite a bit better in their movie form than in their original novel form, which is interesting. And some of them, like the Maltese Falcon, are almost identical. That in some part has to do with the stylization of the film and the very like quick slapdash nature of that style of writing. And also the fact that they tend to be quite short. Once you get to longer and longer novels, you have to cut more and more to make a film out of it. Listen, you need more patience for a book. You need more time. And therefore, you could say more resources to be able to enjoy a book versus what we've learned or what we know about the culture industry or the film industry, which is also trying to sell you something, but in a different way. To me, especially in this film, it's just the parts that will obviously just entertain without substance. think that in the novel we're supposed to like Zhivago? From what I remember, he's portrayed definitely better in the novel. To me, at least in the novel, he's less of a stoic asshole. You know, yeah. you see more sides of his character because, again, you have more time to do so. He's definitely rounder in the book, as you'd expect. And as you'd expect in 600 pages, yeah. And then this question, I guess, is for both of you. Did you find him likable at all in the film? He seemed a little bit of an asshole. I mean, he's not like the worst guy in the world, but... He's bland. I don't know. What are you Yeah. Well, I asked my mom the same question because she saw the movie when it first came out in 1965. And I'm always curious when she has a memory of seeing a big movie like this, what her take on it was. Now, granted, she's not like a normal person, whatever that means. So I asked her, did you think that Javago was a sympathetic character? And do you think he was supposed to be a sympathetic character? And she said, I never really understood it. I never really liked it. I never really understood why it was such a big deal. The guy couldn't commit to anything. And I was like, I know. There was this moment where, you know, across this generation, usually we spend a lot of time arguing with each other, especially about politics. But across this generational divide, we were just like, yes, absolutely. His major flaw is that he never, ever, ever commits to anything. She says he even abandons his profession. Which is true. Midway through the movie, he basically stops being a doctor. He abandons his profession. He abandons his family. He even abandons his lover at the end. He never commits to any political stance whatsoever. He doesn't have bad politics, but that's basically because he doesn't have any politics. He just goes with the flow. and Squishy. He's completely squishy, yeah. So I have this take on it which may or may not be borne out by your understanding of the novel, Anna, but is sort of informed by my very cursory knowledge of Russian literature. And that is that in a certain sense, Dr. Zhivago is the perfect Russian aristocrat. In any other era, he would have been a great guy, but he's completely useless in this era. And what do I mean by that? Well, We see this, and I'm generally thinking of Dostoevsky because that's who I know best in terms of Russian literature, but I'm sure that we see this in other Russian literature because a lot of Russian literature is concerned with the question of, well, what does it even mean to be Russian if you have this sprawling multi-ethnic empire defining that notion is really significant, sort of in a similar way that we Americans are obsessed with the idea of, well, what does it mean to be American? And in a certain sense, any country with any streak of nationalism has this. 
but I think it's more fraught when you have these massive expanses of land and all these different groups cobbled together under one thing. And you see Dostoevsky doing it sometimes with aristocratic characters or sometimes with peasant characters. The person might be from any different level of society, but you do occasionally have these iconic people who are supposed to be like the good Russian, the classic Russian, embodying whatever the traits of Russianness are that are so good that suit that era. And I wonder if Zhivago isn't in some ways that, but that he's like a man out of place. He's from the far Siberian steppes. He is an aristocrat, but he's not just a useless aristocrat. He's a sort of sensitive guy. He's a poet and a doctor. He's an intelligent guy. He's a guy who would, in normal circumstances, be helpful. He embodies a sort of spirit of Russian literature that definitely in the film, and I would imagine in the novel, is sort of held up as distinctly special and special in a Russian way. And to my mind, one of the things that makes him the good Russian aristocrat, the good Russian gentleman, is that squishiness. We have that moment, for instance, where the housing committee has taken over his mansion in Russia, and the woman says to him, you had room in this house for 13 families. I think it's 13. I may be remembering the number wrong. And she says it furiously, judging him, like, of course, this revolution had to happen because you greedy people were keeping the ordinary workers away from having shelter and resources. And he says to her, this is a better situation, much more equitable. And in that statement, we could read that he's just saying what he thinks he's supposed to say. But I want to read it as, and maybe I'm wrong here, you're shaking your head, Anna, so you can correct if I'm misreading it. I want to read it as he actually does understand that the old way things were set up was wrong, and he's willing to go along with the new way of doing things, only he doesn't know how to, really. Again, this might be a misreading of the character, but I think that there is an aspect of him that he does understand something of people's plight, or at least wants to understand it in a way that a totally craven bourgeois character doesn't, like the character of Komarovsky, who's basically the villain of the film and is, you know, willing to do whatever. So I don't know. Am I, am I reading the character correctly, Anna, or what do you well, think? Well, from the book, I was trying to remember if that scene in the movie ever happened in the book. My initial reaction is no. And I could be wrong. I don't think that their house was ever invaded. But again, it's been a while since I read it. Well, the thing is that this was something that actually did happen in the revolution and with good reason. And you have in literature dealing with this period frequently these situations where it's a character who's either aristocratic or bourgeois has his flat or mansion or whatever basically taken over by a committee. And then all of a sudden they're living along with all these strangers who uh, presumably used to be on the street. I know this is something that actually happened. I just sort of assumed that it would actually be in this novel, but maybe it's not. I wish I had my book too so we could look it up. And as for, like, your other question, I think he wants to understand, but he never does. And that's why we see him as so washy throughout this whole film. You know, you could read it that way. So maybe he's trying to go through and make sense of it or whatever. And I don't know. To me, he never does. I wonder if in some ways he, you know, is sort of representing Pasternak's attitude towards the revolution, which is that he's not explicitly counter-revolutionary, but he is sort of inconvenienced by it. And I mean, obviously, he knew people who were persecuted. I think most people did at some point. (laughs) 
Mara says that she's prego, and then it jumps to him dying. What happens there? Does it jump from there in the book? Okay, describe it better. Komarovsky transports her to Outer Mongolia, and it's revealed that she's pregnant. And this is in the intercut between the sort of scene where their presumed daughter is being interrogated by Yevgraf. And basically, he's like, oh, you were born in Mongolia. He wants to basically nail down the fact that she's the daughter of Yuri and Lara. And she sort of insists on denying it. And then Yevgraf tells a story about how he ran into Zhivago and a few years back. And I guess it's presumably around the time or nearly after the time when that character would have been born. But after describing that, it jumps to Yuri is on a train and then he sees Lara and he tries to get off. And as he's trying to run towards her, he has his heart attack. Yep. And dies. Yep. Like, so what all happened? Well, in between there with Yuri. Yevgraf says that he gets him a job at the hospital and that Yuri is on his way to his first day of work at the hospital. And it's presumed that that's when he dies. I'm not sure if him seeing Lara is supposed to be he actually saw her or if he's hallucinating because he's about to die from a heart attack or what. But I don't know. Is there any equivalent to that in the book, Anna? I so wish I had my book because then I could answer for sure. But from what I remember of it, I remember the wife sending him a telegram that says kind of what the wife says, equivalent to that. But she basically just says, have a good life. And then obviously we see that part where they're split up in Uriaton, you know, around that area. And then that does happen in the book. But beyond that, I can't remember if they reunite or not. But I don't remember yeah, him dying from a heart attack. No, this is, they needed to end the movie really fast. Because yeah, exactly. the outline here, and the outline says, part 15. After returning to Moscow, Zhivago's health declines. He marries another woman, fathers two children. Jesus, so he has a third family. He also plans numerous writing projects, which he never finishes. Yuri leaves his new family and friends to live alone in Moscow and work on his writing. He abandons his third family. Again, there you go. Goddamn. After living on his own for a short time, he dies of a heart attack while riding the tram. Well, there you go. So they left in that one detail, but, you know, they skip over it like it's yeah, a big I was, mystery. I was going to say, like, they part, but then that whole dramatic ending is like, wait a minute, this is not it. But yeah. Laura returns to Russia to learn of her dead husband, ends up attending the funeral. So the funeral scene is there. She persuades Yuri's half-brother, who is now, this is the NKVD agent, to assist her in her search for the daughter that she had conceived with Yuri. This is the whole conceit of the movie. She had abandoned her in the Urals. Ultimately, however, Laura disappears, believed arrested during Stalin's Great Purge and dying in the Gulag, a nameless number on a list that was later misplaced. Now that is a quote that is used in the film. And then there's an epilogue. So we can see, I guess, as usual, as we've seen in most of this, that there are little bits and pieces of that that are kept into the film, but then the vast scope of the whole life is omitted. I think that, I mean, to my mind, and maybe this is just from where I'm coming from at this point in my life, the fact that Javago then has a third family that he also yet again abandons is kind of proving my whole point that this is a story about a guy who just can't ever fucking commit to anything. But with him abandoning the second family, is it simply because he wasn't able to find them? No, it was deliberate. Because they were all at the house together, having a good time, actually living together for a period. This is obviously after the wife. This is often 
God knows where. So you're talking about Yuri and Laura at the old mansion. I swear to God they had their kid there too, if I remember right. But that could be wrong too. So basically, that's deliberate. And we see that in the film. He sends them off and he does the exact same thing. He's like, well, I'll come after you. And he never does. He never does. I'm wondering also about the treatment of the poetry in the novel. So one thing we hear about the poetry, like I said, in the film, the poetry is treated as like, it's explicitly counter-revolutionary except Zhivago never intends for it to be that way. It's just that these prick Bolshevik officials are always like, you're too much of an individualist. We can't have that, which may indeed be in the book in some more nuanced way, but seems so much like a British or American writer trying to be like, oh yes, those commies, they hate individualism, which like I said, that's not like that's not a thing. It's just, I'm sure that the novel would be more nuanced. But I also am wondering about who gets to say those things. From what I get in my reading of Mayakovsky and in both his literature and his biography, and this may not have been true by the time you get to mid-century, but certainly in the early Soviet Union, a lot of those battles were fought between different groups of writers, different groups of artists. They were constantly just dissing each other about who was truly making the revolutionary art and who was doing meaningless bullshit. And they would fight it out in their magazines. And sometimes it would, I'm sure, rise to the level where, you know, it was a problem. I'm sure that obviously people got persecuted and people got persecuted for damn near everything right i think i read something offhand about like a couple of times where lenin was like really we're we gonna publish however many of this shit who can understand mayakovsky lenin says it's also significant later on after mayakovsky's dead when it's you know nice and safe that stalin one day says mayakovsky is a great writer and oh, after that he's, he's taught in all the schools my point is, I'm saying that it is true. It is true that what top-level officials said about a writer could matter. And obviously, some people didn't get published if they were writing stuff that was considered counter-revolutionary. But on the other hand, I mean, a lot of this stuff is tiddlywinks between different groups of writers. I, this is all a big lead-off to, like, imagine Strelnikov getting Zhivago in the rail car and interrogating him about his poetry. And then he says, I wrote this down word for word as best I could while I was watching the movie. I used to admire your poetry. I shouldn't admire it now. I should find it absurdly personal. Don't you agree? Feelings, insights, affections. Oh it's suddenly trivial now. The personal life is dead in Russia. History has killed it. In this way where, like, I appreciate the stupid truth in addition to the more nuanced truth, the stupid truth of it is that, yeah, in a certain sense, that's correct. That would be this character's attitude towards the poetry. But also the way that the scriptwriter phrases this using those shoulds is making it obvious that like, oh, Strelnikov wants so badly to like this poetry, but he can't bring him to because it's counter-revolutionary. Like, no, that character would fucking despise this poetry. Yeah. Genuinely would despise it if he cared about it, which he may not even care about oh. it at all because he's got other things to deal with. In Why would he? It's not the only situation. It comes up in a number of points in the film. Uh, Yevgraf does it too. Somebody will be like, oh yeah, I really knew I wasn't supposed to like this stuff because it was the bad boy literature. But I actually secretly really did like it, but uh, I'm supposed to say that it's individualistic bullshit. And again, there's an element to that where I get that there's a stupid 
stupid truth behind it. But there's also a big lie of, come on, you're talking about NKVD agents. They got better shit to deal with than wincing over whether they like a poem or not. And yet I'm sure that people were persecuted for what they wrote. That's the thing with an authoritarian regime. I don't know. What do you think? Absolutely. And there's a couple different connections there. Like when you were referencing the critique of the poetry, that reminded me exactly of Mayakovsky and when he talks about critiques of him. You know, he used to write such great things as a cloud in trousers and now it's all of this other shit. Why would anybody want, please, please love me, I hate myself, when you could have fucking airplanes and giant battles? What do you think about the character of Komarovsky? Because I have a few notes on that. <laughs> I, you guys knew this was coming, so... Yeah. This is not a comment on Komarovsky, because why would I answer your question? But this is actually more another critique of the film in a way that I don't think it works very well for an American audience. And I wonder if you guys picked up on this. And this was a part of why I wanted to make sure that I sent you that episode of Revolutions, emphasizing the double revolution theory and the permanent revolution theory. Because the characters of Pasha Komarovsky and Yuri Zhivago set out the class structure of Russia in a very distinct way that's never referenced specifically in the film. I think that because the director was British, he may have just assumed that it was understood, David Lean, because obviously Britain still has an aristocracy. But like I said, Zhivago is supposed to be the aristocrat. Komarovsky is the bourgeois, the sort of crass bourgeois, you know, mercenary. Definitely crass. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that, I'm sure. But, you know, by the end of it, he's found a way to weasel his way into the Bolshevik regime, too, just because, you know, he's a survivor. He's going to do whatever he needs to do. He He has no values whatsoever. No. And then there's Pasha, who is a genuine working class Bolshevik agitator who manages to go all the way up through the ranks to become Strelnikov. I think it's interesting that in the movie about the double revolution of 1917, where the Tsar is overthrown and then the provisional government is overthrown by the Bolshevik coup and then secured through the Civil War. Though I do not believe that the word aristocracy or aristocrat is ever used even once. So I wonder if it was even clear to you guys, it was probably clear to you, Anna, because you read the book, but Rachel, I wonder if it was even clear to you that there is actually a class divide between someone like Komarovsky and someone like Zhivago. Going back to like the normal person, I don't think I'm a normal person in the sense where I would be blind to like class structures and class divides. So it was pretty obvious to me that they represented different things, especially with Pasha slash Strelnikov. That was a pretty big thing. Right. But what I mean to say is that the film simplifies the class war that the Bolsheviks were conducting in that revolution from a tripartite structure into a bipartite structure. 
I would even say it goes further to not really deal quite so much with the peasantry even at all, but that's another question. But yeah, like I said, for Americans, we don't have an aristocracy in America. I mean, I, we're sort of developing one at this point, so maybe that's different. But you get how on an average American, they might be sort of lost that like actually Zhivago is a completely different type of person than Komarovsky is. They're not both rich in the same way. They're rich in different ways. From reading the book, that was completely obvious to me. But again, like almost every element of this film, they hacked it up. It's just another example, going back to what we talked about with films versus books, is that it's simplified, and it's simplified for an audience because partly it has to be. And then again, even though it has to be, or maybe it doesn't have to be, I don't know, I was still disappointed. But yeah, in comparison from the film to the book, you definitely see that for sure, how it's simplified. I kind of perceive Komarovsky to be a little bit aristocratic. Like, he's got the money. But that's the thing. He's got the money for a different reason. He didn't, he's not presumed to have inherited the money. He's running this, what is this, this dress shop or something? Was he the one running it? No. The point is that he appears to be a businessman. It wasn't the dress shop because the dress shop was run by, you know, someone's female relative, if I remember right, but it wasn't Komarovsky. And that's the big issue I have with this film, if I'm remembering it right. Which just sort of offhandedly mentions that he was the executor of The Will. Is that Yeah, exactly. And that was what I was going to get to. And that's why I wanted your thoughts, because Mm -hmm. Komarovsky is way overblown as a character in this film in comparison to the book. They needed a villain. And apparently they just picked Komarovsky for the film. I don't like him because he switches too much. And like, you think he's one thing, but he's not. And then he's another thing. He's squishy, but it doesn't make sense. He portrays himself as not squishy at all. He's got a hard shell, but he's ultimately very squishy. Well, I think what you mean to say is that he has no values. He has no values in in a way that's quite different than Zhivago's lack of values. I mean, Zhivago is, I think squishy is a good way of describing him. Zhivago goes with the flow. But Komarovsky, my description is more mercenary, that he's willing to do whatever he needs to do to benefit himself. That's what I don't understand, because from my reading of this novel, Komarovsky was never even significant enough to remember. He is the executor of Zhivago's parents' will. It's implied in the movie that he basically stole his money from the Zhivago estate by his machinations as their executor. So I guess that means he's some kind of lawyer or accountant of some sort. And then he yeah. comes to Moscow and he's some sort of businessman. He's, yeah, incredibly rich. But the idea is that he has his new money. That's what makes him bourgeois as opposed to an aristocrat. Yeah, new money versus old money. It's just so bizarre how something is created out of almost nothing in a book. Does he rape Laura in the book as he does in the no. movie? That's just completely inserted just to make no, it. No, I think I would remember something as major as that. Yeah. And from my memory... That never happened. And that's what I'm saying, too. I don't even remember Komarovsky in the intricate web of characters. It didn't happen. So that was completely inserted. And why? Why do you think that was inserted? And and do you think that was just to beef up his wolfish character, if we're going to read it that way? So basically what you're saying is that the film just took a couple major plot points in the names of characters and made a film about it? Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I hate it so much. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it might be one of the worst films I've ever watched. And for a scene like that with sexual violence, why? I don't understand. It's Uh so unnecessary if I don't even remember it from the book. 
Yeah, I'm going through the outline right here. He's not supposed to be a good guy in the book, but he's supposed to be more ambiguous, right? Right. That's what I remember him That, as. like, on the one hand, he sort of is creepy and exploiting Lara and her mother, but on the other hand, he protects her and shelters her when she can, you know, she still shoots fucking Komarovsky. In the arm, and then he's here. And, and then he cold. shelters her, yeah. Like there is I'm a great commotion, guy. and it is discovered that Lara has shot Kornakov, not Komarovsky, and Kornakov has received only a minor wound. They didn't even use the fucking name. Whatever. Like she shoots the wrong person. It's whack, honestly. She's going after Kornikov because he was involved in the crackdown against the Bolsheviks. He prosecuted a group of railway workers. Yeah, that sounds more accurate, and especially in relation to Pasha. They keep the shooting. From my memory, she doesn't even shoot Komarovsky, right? Yeah, so she shoots a completely different person for a completely different reason. Yeah, they keep the shooting in there, though. They I keep don't... the shooting and everything else is, okay, well, that's... I'm starting to hate this film even more and more. Well, like, just absolutely <sighs> slaughtering this. Like, it would be fine if it were a film by itself, but basing it off that book and the way it's portrayed, don't even try Well, I mean, we can, we can ask ourselves questions like, okay, why do they change it like this? Yeah, I mean, that's why I was asking, why introduce such a violent scene against women? Why other changes as well? That's very significant, you know? Yeah. And nothing is done in film by accident. Everything's planned, sometimes planned badly, but still planned. So, why? Well, I don't think it's coming from a place of actual concern about violence against women. No, it's not. Well, I think that ultimately the message that I get from that is whoever's rewriting the script finds it easier to imagine that if somebody's going to get shot, it's going to be for a personal vendetta than to suggest that it may have something to do with bigger picture political issues. Like in the book, she's going after this judge who has been persecuting a, a number of people in the movement, but Pasha's family as well. If I'm understanding it, then we almost see like in the book that there's this way that Lara could have become a Bolshevik, but she didn't go that direction. And in the movie, that's just sort of ruled out entirely. She happens to be in love with Pasha, which makes a little bit less sense. And then Pasha's family strife is condensed down to this one really vicious, quick monologue that he delivers to Komarovsky about his parents being in Siberia and prisons and stuff like that. There are moments like that. You have flashes in the script where something peeks through that you can tell was a much bigger thing in the book. And you're like, wow but they don't do more with it. And in fact, I suspect that they don't do more with it on purpose. Obviously, the Communist Party did not like this novel. They didn't want it to be published, but it's a novel of great nuance. And whether because they were looking for something to just be entertaining or because they just couldn't imagine any way that wasn't sticking it to the Soviets, this is not a film of great nuance. No, it's not. It's rough. Obviously, I've said that before, but Definitely in a number of ways, and this is definitely only one of them. And going back to your point, that definitely shows the tilt of the writers and also the system that it's going through, because why fight for something that may better us all? That's inconceivable to that individual and therefore the system that it has to be filtered through. 
it just shows so much about how these things are made and what people unfortunately have to go through to write these things. Like, of course she's gonna shoot him for rape, never mind that her partner is trying to improve his situation. And then therefore the situation for Russia when they're trying to figure it out, mm-hmm. you know. It sort of ends up presenting it as like, well, isn't it strange that they managed to pull this off? It's as though the capitalist mindset, which produces this film, can't imagine that these Bolsheviks be taken seriously. The more I think about it, it's actually very similar to fascist rhetoric. The fascist rhetoric about the Jews or about Antifa or about whatever pick your target hated group always simultaneously claims that that group is weak and pathetic. And also that they are secretly, overwhelmingly, unbelievably strong. And so what we get is the early scene with the Bolsheviks marching where they're noble, but a bit silly and pathetic, and they just get beaten to shit by the Cossacks. And Pasha, whose heart is obviously in the right place. And that's the thing. Is it what a liberal thing for me to say, right? His heart is in the right place. And yet he just looks like a foolish idealist. He's not the kind of person who we can take seriously as somebody who's literally going to fucking overthrow the government within the next 10 years, which is what he does. He doesn't do it alone, but that is what his group does. And so instead, we just jump over this distinction from this really weak, idealistic, like, isn't it strange that they, you know, want to not fucking starve to death? Immediately to now I'm a powerful interrogation agent who can, you know, send you to a prison camp or to death if you displease me. On the one hand, pathetic and weak. On the other hand, overpowering menace. Like the Jews in Nazi Germany. Like, yeah, oh, exactly. I, yeah. It might not be a threat now, but after time, they're going to be the source of all of our issues. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it is fascist rhetoric. It's the same kind of thing you hear when people talk about Antifa. They're skinny bike punks, but they're also a secret group of stone-cold killers who are going to take over your city. <laughs> They might not have a leader, or they might, but I mean, they could be anyone, just so yeah. just watch out. They're everywhere. But I think that that's really interesting that probably without even knowing it, this film has become completely rhetorically congruent with right-wing conspiracy theory talking points. Cute. Maybe that's why I hate it. I don't know. Like I, I said, I think it's a lot. lack of imagination. Yeah. If you can't imagine that a better world is possible, then it has to only be expressed in these discontinuities. It can't be expressed through the middle route of like, well, maybe there were some people who would have been Bolsheviks, but they didn't quite have the stones to do it. Or maybe there were some people who agreed with it, but they weren't willing to stand up and join it until they'd already won, you know? Or maybe there were some people who actually knew it was right, but they just kept their mouths shut. Those are nuances that the film uh, only deals with in certain glancing moments. Like I said, thinking about that scene with the housing committee, that to me is a moment like that. The most interesting part to you, really quick, and then I have a question about relationships. The thing that pops out to me visually is Uriatin. Like, that visually pops out to me. But the thing that's, I think, the most memorable for me, and it may just be because it's towards the end, is Yuri denying Morofsky's aid. Like, you absolute idiot. Pick up your balls and just take his aid. It's not the time to be proud, yeah. Yeah. I have two sequences that I think are the most significant to my mind. 
the sequence that I liked the most was the sequence on the train where they're traveling east. I thought that that was really fascinating visually and sort of as a representation of what they'd all been reduced to. You have that scene where they're sleeping in just a pile of people on the train platform and it's not clear why until the train pulls up and they're like only 50 people per car and then they're just getting in as quickly as possible and you're like, oh my God, they literally have to just be there to get on the car right away. They have to muck out the hay because they're sort of traveling as though they were livestock and you have Klaus Kinski in this completely wild role that I wish would have gone on for longer as the anarchist who's getting transported for forced labor. I'm just fascinated by that sequence and they come to the Urals and you get to see the forests and the mountains. And I thought that was really cool. That was one of the better sections of the movie for me. Well, you know what's funny? If we're talking about the washi aristocrat, there is a workers section or there is a prisoner or forced labor section on the train. When they're traveling, if I remember right, they're forced to leave their home and he actually travels with his original family, like with his right, wife. Right, yeah, yeah and with his father-in-law. From and their I, daughter, right? And their daughter. And from what I remember, they actually travel in comfort. Oh, so that was changed. Yeah, that was changed. So My God. Yeah, so this really is just a propaganda movie. It really is, honestly. From what I remember, like they talked about how they'd wake up every day and he'd be so happy to see his wife and then they'd sort out their things on the train and then it was just a happy, jolly time, and then they would converse with other people on the train and then look out of the window and converse about how long do we have left to where we're going and stuff. So it, from what I remember, it wasn't that bad. But there was a workers' section. And from what I remember, the two never mixed, I don't think. I like this so much better. I mean, this is, to me, so much more like, if you want to show us hard scrabble communism, it's like, fuck you, Zhivago, get in the fucking cattle car with everyone else, you know? The idea that there would still be a class system on the trains is kind of outrageous to me. I, I'm almost angry about it. I'm even angrier that they would invent that for the movie. Yeah, no, there was definitely a separate section. So yeah, it really is a propaganda film. I find that really wild that they decided to be like, this is what happens under communism. Everybody's treated like an animal. I have no doubt that they would have treated prisoners that way. And I wouldn't be surprised if they would treat ordinary people like that if they literally had no resources. But if that's not the way it was written in the book and they decided to insert that into the movie, that's pretty crazy to me. Yeah. That's why the film is so frustrating because there are so many moments like that. You know, we already discovered one with Komarovsky too. They could have justified it to themselves if they thought that Pasternak was self-censoring and that those were actually the conditions on those kinds of trains in that era. Who the fuck knows? We'd have to do more research to figure that one out. Like I said, I kind of am assuming that that might have been what it would have been like for a prisoner train. But who knows? Obviously, we see the atrocities of this war, and this is a vicious, vicious fucking war on both sides. And we'll see that more when we read Babel's Red Cavalry. Both sides are absolutely doing war crimes in this war. There's no question about that. Let's get that off the table. You were saying that in the film, we see a little bit more of both sides of the army, that Zhivago is a doctor first with the Cossacks and then with the Red Army later on. The Forest Brotherhood is the Bolshevik guerrilla band. That's the Red Army group that presses him into service. So there are two battle scenes and they're not very well cut together. Fucking old British dude. And in the second one, it's actually a very famous scene that's remembered by people who see this movie as like, oh, look at the war crimes that the Red Army did. 
we've seen stuff before this, you know, on the train ride to get there, the whole towns that they sacked and even suggestions that, oh, you went after the wrong village and stuff like that. And people are already, you know, making excuses for things. And if, if the NKVD goes after somebody, it's probably because they did something wrong. It's the Cheka, and then it's the NKVD, and then it's the KGB later on. But you get the idea, the secret police, whoever Strelnikov represents. But, but the second combat scene, the red guerrillas shoot the oncoming troops, the white army. They're literally just kids who are running at them in white shirts. And afterwards, they see that, you know, they're from such and such military academy or whatever. And then one of the commanders finds the old man who's leading them in combat. And he says, old bastard or something like that. And the message that I get from this, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the obvious message, which is that the white army are fucking scum because they're leading these teenage kids who look all of like 16 into combat and knowing they'll be fucking slaughtered because that's what they've got. And there are these old sort of decrepit commanders doing it. And yet the way that I've always heard about this scene and the way that I suspect Expect 1965 Western film goers, rah rah capitalism, remembered it was oh, those dirty, nasty Reds, they even killed children. Yeah, you're probably not wrong. And again, that's not to say that this is not technically a war crime. That's not to say that both armies didn't constantly commit war crimes in this awful civil war. But the scene that I see there is, well, they were being attacked and they shot back and this fucking bastard sends children into combat. I feel like it just completely reflects poorly on the white Russians. I don't know what you're supposed to expect the Reds to do in that situation, just not fight as they're being attacked. Again, not saying that's not a war crime. It certainly is a war crime. And I would not be in the slightest bit surprised if things like that didn't happen almost constantly in that horrible war. When were the doctrines of war created that would have defined it as a war crime? You're probably thinking of the Geneva Convention. And there there are a bunch of these over the years. They start in the mid-19th century, and they get more and more teeth going through the 20th century. But then again, there are never really any teeth. I mean, the only time they ever actually get teeth is when they start trying people after the Second World War. And because that was the first time that they'd ever done that, there were a lot of those Nazis lawyers who made the case for perfectly reasonable legal reasons that you can't prosecute someone for a law that you just invented right now. But, you know, the idea is that there have to be some boundaries. Because if we're going by the Geneva Convention, the stuff from the summer definitely broke a few laws. Oh, well, it gets better than that. Now, the old way that this was done, back to General Orders 100 during the Civil War and other sort of similar proclamations, was the more powerful side in a war might declare what they thought the rules were. And basically the point is, if you follow these rules, we will follow these rules. If you don't, all bets are off and fuck you. If you don't kill prisoners, we won't kill prisoners. But if you do, you know, who knows what we'll do. That's the only way that you have to enforce those kinds of rules when you don't have any international body. And basically, you know, it, it also then leads to a situation like in World War I, where basically everyone fighting in World War I had already agreed that they couldn't use poison gas. Well, everybody used poison gas in World War I because once somebody breaks the rule, the only solution is, well, now everybody gets to break the rule. It also means that everybody gets to make up their excuse for it. The Germans could be like, well, the French started it because maybe the French had used tear gas on a few occasions. And then the the Germans are like, oh, you couldn't use gas. We can use gas now. And then they're just using fucking chlorine. The way that it exists now is there's an international criminal court, which you can be taken to and prosecuted in front of. Now, it doesn't happen all that often. And often it doesn't happen until people are old. 
you would imagine that given the amount of power we wield in the UN, we would be subject to the International Criminal Court, but we're not uh, signatories to it. Every time that they've tried to do anything, we've always basically been like, we, we're not going to abide by your rules. If they did, they could put George W. Bush on trial. If they did, they could put Barack Obama on trial. They could put Henry Kissinger on trial. Yeah, no, the United States is not under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. And I've often, in my more idealistic moments, wished that there was a presidential candidate who would run on that one single platform. But no, because we have to reserve the right to do whatever the fuck we want at any fucking time. Now, we still are signatories to all kinds of treaties and shit like that in terms of agreeing on what weapons we could or might use. And often we sign sort of cutouts to allow for exceptions to those things, annoyingly. But kind of ends up being an honor system if you can't actually be prosecuted by the court. Isn't that nice how that works out? Well, the thing is that these things have to be sort of bilateral or multilateral. Basically, we surrender our right to bring anybody in front of the court and they can't bring us in front of the court. Is sort of the way it works. But there's always, you know, somebody else who could. I mean, that's because we don't, sol- we don't solve our problems that way. We solve our problems by invading countries. So it's a long-winded digression. I think that, you know, those who believe that something like war crimes are important sort of believe that they exist transhistorically and they don't have to be established in a book of rules. But of course, effectively, that's kind of how things shake out. And part of the Bolshevik ideology was... And for reasons that must by now be quite obvious, part of Bolshevik ideology was that all these laws and all these rules are just shit that bourgeois liberals come up with to, on the one hand, make themselves feel better and ideologically superior, and on the other hand, to give themselves excuses for things. But in reality, they never abide by them themselves. Like the moment the October Revolution, you know, went into full swing, a half dozen different countries invaded the Soviet Union to help the White Army. That wouldn't, technically speaking, seem to follow the laws of international conduct, but whatever. Anyway, Anna, go ahead. No, I was just going to say excuses to do the bare fucking minimum. Well, uh, and the thing is that you could always come up with a million exceptions, too. Yeah. The Bolshevik ideology, and this is, you know, again, I don't ever want to sound like a tanky when we do these, but obviously I don't think that the Bolsheviks were out to just gain power. I do think they genuinely thought that they were going to make Russia, and actually initially they believed the whole world a better place through conducting a proletarian revolution. I do think that they were genuine in their motives. But, you know, it can get to a really dark place quite obviously when the ideology that underpins that goes to a place where like these bougie libs never believe in any of this shit they say they believe in anyway. So we're just going to be honest and be like, we're purely ends justify the means types. And fortunately, that's what made them so successful because they were willing to do that. But, you know, then you inevitably get right to the horrors that follow from the revolution. And there were even plenty of horrors before even Stalin comes to power. But after Stalin, all bets are off. And at that point, it's like, eh. Yeah. You have to also put it in the context of people who'd always lived under this absolutist monarchy in this vast empire. The idea of secret police was not new. It was like, oh, well, we've taken over the government. Of course we have a secret police. Why would we not have a secret police? There's always been a fucking secret police. Of course we're censoring books. Why would we not censor books? Books have always been censored in Russia. That's not to say those things are good. It's just to say that the Bolsheviks were not into making up excuses They were true materialists. They were not going to try and talk about squishy things like human rights and shit like that. They were interested in the concrete things like you've got a house. We got a whole bunch of people who need to live in this house. Fuck you. 
Like in the movie. Like in the movie. One of my questions that I have is, I'm really curious what your thoughts are, especially against the society that we live in in comparison to 65. I'm wondering what your thoughts were, and you already kind of mentioned this, on Zhivago himself and then his different relationships, like his different families. Do you think he's right in doing that? We already said that he can't commit to anything. But do you think the idea of him going through and having different families, what are your thoughts on that? Or is it just him, you know, not committing like we said, what are your thoughts on his relationships in this film? To me, how it's set up, at least in the book, is kind of interesting. To me, it's kind of the typical thing about what we see when people go off to war and then they find someone yeah. else. That was actually what I was going to ask you. Does the book sort of forgive him saying, well, it was wartime, people were displaced, relationships were severed, it happened all the time? Well, yeah, and then they have this whole, not only the war, but, you know, then they have this whole deeper friendship that continues at least partially at the same time that he's, you know, still with his first wife. And, I mean, in the book, he is definitely forgiven, and he's even forgiven by his wife, you know, because he receives this letter that's like, she writes to him and says, like, I have no fault for you, and I wish you the best, and here's where I am, and I might not ever see you again. I mean, that's what it reminds me of, though, that connection that you have that you might not ever have with the person that you thought you had it with, you know, because of the war and because of whatever other things. But yeah, what are your guys' thoughts? The way I kind of perceived it a little bit was when he wasn't finding the love and affection that he wanted or he found somebody that showed him more, he moved on to them and he just kept moving because he wanted more attention. And once he left them, he kind of forgot about his guilt, except when he saw them and he just wanted that love again. And that's not exactly how I feel, but that's the best I can use in words right now. Yeah. I think that the thing that perplexes me the most about the film, and I would suspect this is probably in the novel as well, and it's probably just a distinction between attitudes in that period and particularly in that period in that part of the world and attitudes now in this part of the world. I am perplexed by the total coldness of Yuri Zhivago to his children. They always just seem to be following him around. Well, more properly following their mother around. They don't seem to be particularly significant, and he doesn't seem to like particularly care about them. Like, it's why a, that they're focused on the daughter. Yeah, there's a moment in the movie where Laura talks about them having a daughter together, and I'm like, motherfuckers, y'all already have so many kids that you're just completely ignoring. Laura already had a daughter by that point. And then she wanted another daughter because it would have been Zhivago's daughter. And I can't help but think, dude, you already left one of your kids behind. They're all daughters, if I'm remembering correctly. Ah, I may, may not be remembering correctly. But the point is, if I can't remember, that also sort of proves the point. They're just treated as unimportant. And I think that may just be the culture of the time. So I feel like, you know, maybe if the burning passion of your relationship isn't staying with you through the years and years and years and years and years, okay, whatever. Now you're a mom and a dad, you know, and you've got kids. Certainly, you're going to feel something for the kids, right? I don't know. Is there any more of that in the book or is it just whatever? 
Not really. From what I remember, it's just, you know. But in, in a certain sense, that is absolutely the old school aristocratic approach where it's just like, I don't know, I got these kids, whatever, you know. <laughs> From what I remember, he has a girl and a boy with his first wife. Okay, yeah. That may indeed be in the film too, but I don't think it matters, which kind of proves the point. And it doesn't really matter. And the, another thing that might help you form your thoughts about him finding other people to love is that from what I remember in the book, his marriage to his first wife, like, yeah, they found each other, they got along and stuff, but it was never on the same level as Laura because, well, whatever we already said because of the war, but also in the book, they were married because it was set up. Yeah, it was an arranged marriage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Almost arranged from childhood, if I'm remembering it correctly. Wasn't she like his cousin or some shit? Yeah, they grew up together. Yeah, yeah. I'm not here to diss some imaginary character who can't even pretend to care about his family, but it just seems odd to me. But whatever. I don't like the guy. He's not a bad guy, but there's nothing warm about him at all, you know? He's squishy. I, I understand being squishy. I understand being weak, but I don't understand not in the course of however long this fucker lives finding anything to give a shit about other than I like writing poetry too, but I mean, there are other things in my, in my world, you know? <laughs> so you're saying even his relationship with Laura or with if anyone he, else? If he really cared about Laura, if he really, really, truly cared about Laura, he would have been willing to accompany her in her escape to make sure that it worked out for her. probably fair and also i mean then again this is my modern mindset filtering in but i would think that he would maybe show a little bit more affection for her daughter and give a shit about that but whatever i don't know i'm inclined to think that dudes of his class in that era didn't really care about their children generally speaking that just wasn't part of their job it doesn't make it good comments are that it's just the phenomena that we see of reading a book first and then going and watching the film and being so disappointed by it and as for the relationship part I do appreciate how he finds love in other people but again I don't value how he's just so eh you know about it you could have pulled it off as relatable if he had at least seemed the slightest bit conflicted right Things are complicated. People are conflicted all the time. But as for this film in comparison to this book, you know, I'd say for our listeners, definitely don't watch this film. You know, or don't watch it. You should watch it. You should watch it. No, 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 no. Skeptical eye. It's a waste of three hours. Just read the book because. Everything has its faults, but I think for a piece of Russian literature, it's worth reading just to know of it. And even if you only skim it, that's better than nothing. But I think that it's something that most people should attempt to read, even though it's such a scary book in length. I think that what's really interesting about this book is how it became a political football for what doesn't seem like any good reason. It certainly doesn't paint a rosy picture of the Bolsheviks, but it's a nuanced picture of a whole era. Mm -hmm. 
Supposedly, after he retired from his uh, position as Soviet premier, Nikita Khrushchev said that he regretted allowing the novel to be banned from publication, that it would have been better if they would have just published it. It's almost like one of these bits in the movie where it's like, actually, I secretly really liked your writing, but I had to pretend like I didn't because I wanted to be a good commie, you know? I don't know if you put it that way, but I think that it's a correct sentiment. And Khrushchev's big thing was after he took power, he ultimately denounced Stalin and said, we're not going to do it that way again. So I think that this would have been a great opportunity for him to be like, yes, we are allowing this to be published because it's a great Russian novel. And it may talk about some bad things that the Bolsheviks did, but it talks about bad things that the white Russians did as well. And it's a nuanced work of literature. If they would have published it, I think that it would have been actually really good for the Soviet Union in a number of different ways. But by insisting on censoring it and then getting this, you know, version of it published in Italy, getting the CIA then gets some like butchered Russian translation that they start smuggling back into the Soviet Union. It ends up being used as this political football. And then so what you get in 1965 is this movie that's then even much more of a propaganda artifact than the novel could have ever been, because that's not what the novel wanted to be. The novel was just trying to be literature. Nothing wrong with propaganda, but the novel is just trying to be literature. I mean, in a certain sense, that's the whole point of it. What we get at the root of what's being said about poetry in the novel and what we can see barely gleaming through in the movie is that literature is more complicated than politics. Like true literature is going to be nuanced and sensitive and deal with people who may not be great people, but, you know, deal with them in hopefully a nuanced way. And I think you asked this earlier, and I don't know how I didn't respond, but like in his poetry too, it's, I think it's a variety of his thoughts even. Yeah. The impression that I get from the movie is that they're making it sound like he just is writing love poems or nature poems, like frivolous stuff, when I imagine that it's probably more wide ranging and substantial in the book. Yeah, so what you get is this propaganda war, basically. And then, you know, so Khrushchev has to basically dig in his heels. When Pasternak gets the Nobel Prize, then they prohibit him from accepting it, from traveling to receive it, and so on and so forth. It ends up being this giant battle, and it didn't need to be that. It's just that once they put their foot down, and I mean, we see this in our own damn government, you know? People just feel like they need to stick to a point of principle. It didn't need to be censored. It obviously shouldn't have been by the time that you get, I I think Gorbachev allows it to ultimately be published during Perestroika, if I'm getting my terminology correct. Uh, once things get sort of loosened up a little bit more. But it's sort of one of those things where people come up with the meaning is going to be before they even read the thing or before they even see the movie, and then therefore it means something. It means something outside of itself. If it's about disillusion, you know, that's quite different than what we get in the movie, which is about straight-up alienation. I also had a thought in my mind that if you were in charge of such things in the Soviet Union, what would you do when this movie comes around in 65? I mean, I feel like you could just run this movie literally exactly the same in the Soviet Union and just change the title to The Villain Zhivago. And it's like, oh, look at this shiftless bastard. There's so much about this movie that's what you bring into it. And and I imagine that's similar to the novel itself. Anna, you had the benefit of probably bringing not too much into it and just kind of reading it with an open mind. But imagine people reading it in the 50s, you know, reading it in the 50s is like, oh, this is something they smuggled out of communist Russia. 
And for me, it fails as a propaganda piece because what it's trying to do is it's trying to meet materialism with ideology. And then that ideology isn't even ever directly expressed. It is the individual. It is the beautiful soul. In other circumstances, Timothy Morton has referred to this idea of the beautiful soul fallacy. And I think that he uses it completely differently. But it is, for some reason, ultimately related to writing nature poetry and shit like that, which is, you know, the beautiful soul fallacy basically comes down, as I understand, it or as I'm using it here comes down to the idea that well you might be a complete shithead in your real life but uh you wrote really nice poetry and that expresses the beauty of your deep soul and so we have to treat you as though you're a nice person that just reminds me of so many other shit bags that we've talked about on, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. on this podcast it's just like oh my god yeah and so I think that the movie tries to meet materialism with idealism by saying that there's something else going on in Javago's mind and in his heart that makes him special. But we don't even ever see that. It's just an imaginary thing that like we want the freedom to express ourselves in poetry and to get bored with, you know, one woman and fuck another woman. <clears throat> That's kind of thin gruel here, you know. So it's meeting the concrete with the abstract. And to me, if you're looking for an anti-communist work of literature, you're much better off meeting concrete with concrete. So the one work that I remember reading in high school that's stuck with me and is, I think, well supported as a, a great work of anti-Soviet literature is One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which is literally just one day, dawn till dusk, meticulous concrete description of what it was like to live in the gulag and to just do manual labor all day and just what it felt like and that meets the material with the material if you're going to be materialist well then we'll show you materially what it was like my imagined propaganda film like if i were trying to make this movie for the capitalists to talk shit on the soviet union i'd just do the train ride i'd just do the whole train ride start it in petrograd go to moscow and go from there all the way out east and you start it with a group of very high-minded idealistic bolsheviks who are getting involved in the revolution and going to go deeper into the country to help out with this or that or the other thing and then by the time they get to the end of it it ends at the gulag and you take people through that whole journey and you just keep it as concrete as possible no need for ideology whatsoever just show what it looked like and that would be your anti-communist movie but in order to do that you have to take the dreams of the revolution seriously in order to do that you have to take the idea that we are building something better seriously and then you can be disillusioned when you build something that's actually worse they clearly didn't consider it to its full extent in this film some of that is a built-in weakness of the text, which is that it is about an aristocratic character. And in order to do these aristocratic characters, so much of it is about families. And that leads to very long novels with shitloads of characters, which you can't do very well in film. And is an entirely different thing than what I'm imagining. But that's just my flights of fancy. You've been listening to Professor Frank Fuchile and research assistants Anna Windorf and Rachel Hamilton. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. The song in today's episode is Electric Current on Uvula's album Nothing Supernatural. For more information on the Russian Revolution, listen to the History of the 20th Century podcast and the Revolutions podcast. Thank you.
You can support The Pointless Century at patreon.com slash thepointlesscentury. Support levels include Navel Gazer for $1.11 per month, and The Shoe Gazer for $4.20 per month, and Void Gazer for $19.17 per month. Make sure to troll us on Twitter at Pointless Cent and follow us on Instagram at The Pointless Century. And if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the links in the description for both our Tea Public merch and our previously mentioned Patreon. We'll see you next time with another episode of The Pointless Century. Pointless Century.